In the year 1904, the Fédération Internationale L'Automobile, or FIA, is a nonprofit organization that represents the interests of motor car drivers and groups. In terms of their outward facing activities, alongside helping develop car related regulations and standards, that mostly means that the FIA governs car racing events, including the many Worldwide Grand Prix events and the core rule set that underpins many of them, the Formula One class. Formula One, or F1 for short, is the highest class of single-seat automobile racing, and a season of F1 races is called a Grand Prix. Grands Prix as a plural, and Grand Prix is French for great or grand prizes. So a Grand Prix in a particular country, like the Russian Grand Prix, is a series of races held in Russia that utilize the F1 standards and rules, with an eventual winner taking the most points, awarded based on the driver's performance and the hardware produced by the car makers, the driver's championship and the constructor's championship, respectively. F1 racing stands out from other racing standards worldwide, managed by similar organizations like NASCAR and IndyCar, in that it's the only true international organization of its scale. Both IndyCar and NASCAR are American-focused organizations, and in that F1 races tend to be shorter and quite fast, with higher Gs experienced by drivers, on average, than in comparable races, due to the zippiness of the cars and the difficulty of the tracks upon which they race. F1 cars have evolved quite a bit since the league's formalization in 1947, with few cars measuring up to its high standards back in the early days, which led to Formula 2 races being held a few of those early years instead, which meant cars of a lower standard could participate. And over time, new fuels and engine types required that the league place a cap on the length of races and regulate engine capacities. F1 races went entirely championship level in 1983, and by 1990, 500 Grands Prix had been held around the world. A few years later, in 1994, two driver deaths in quick succession led to a rethinking of safety standards. There have been 53 deaths in total across the long history of Formula One racing, but they had been few and far between in recent years. After that rethinking and recalibrating of safety standards for the race, though, it was more than two decades before another driver died behind the wheel, at the Japanese Grand Prix in 2014. There are more changes occurring in the world of F1 racing at the moment, some of them competition-related, with the league instigating a new budget cap of $175 million per team per year, a limit that is meant to keep the better-funded teams from winning every single Grand Prix and a number that is about half of the average current budget for teams in the league. This cap is much debated, though, as there are a large number of exemptions that, if used correctly, will likely allow most teams to keep spending at their current levels. But that they see some kind of cap as being necessary speaks volumes about the league's perception of competition on the market. The barbarians at the gate, in the shape of other racing organizations threatening to steal some of their market share if they're not careful, and about how dominant some of the main entities in the F1 league have become. And those entities are quite spendy and thus tend to have the nicest cars with the highest-end engines. 
Ferrari has the largest overall Formula One budget, allocating about 510 million euros to research and development alone in 2016. And Mercedes has a team of 950 employees who have helped their cars win 73.7% of all F1 races since 2014. It should be noted that a big part of the incentive to participate in F1 racing is that it grants participants an air of luxury and the assumption of high-end performance, amplifying their overall brand value, while also giving them the excuse to test out high-end components that may or may not ever make it to market. A lot of the innovations they come up with for this level of racing would not make sense for a consumer-grade vehicle, but some of the components can be tweaked for other use cases, and often are. There's another internal harbinger of change creeping up on F1 racing, though, that has some fans and teams divided as to whether the brand will be rejuvenated or absolutely devastated in the very near future. Formula One racing is the highest-end rule set for combustion engine-based single-seat vehicles internationally. Formula E racing is a separate brand, also run by the FIA, that's focused on racing electric vehicles. And like the F1, the main FE league is for single-seater cars racing at high speeds on complex tracks around the world. FE is a lot less well-known than its fuel-guzzling cousin, and that's partly because it's quite new. Its inaugural season was held in 2014 and 2015. There's also some understandable hesitancy amongst those who are enjoying and flourishing within the current paradigm. Because first, electric cars are structurally quite different from combustion engine-based cars. And second, because the rules are a little bit different, the cars are a little bit slower, and the league itself is trying out some new things that are meant to capture audience attention, perhaps at the expense of some well-honed and well-respected traditions. One such innovation, found in FE, is what's called Fan Boost, which is a vote held on social media before each race, the winner of which gains an extra power boost for that race, the power boost being just what it sounds like, a momentary burst of power, which all drivers have in a limited number. So the winner of this social media competition gains one additional little in-race advantage of that kind. Another innovation is called Attack Mode, which allows drivers to drive through a specific area just off the track to gain an additional 25 kilowatts of power, another quick one-off speed boost mechanic that makes the whole endeavor seem a little more like a video game in some ways, and a little less like a car-based Tour de France or similar, more traditional race. The cars, too, look a lot flashier and more sci-fi, and the leaderboards are a lot more likely to have newer companies and younger drivers in the top 10. The FE League also has sub-leagues, one that is focused on the racing of electric SUVs, one that has been discontinued, but which sounds like a lot of fun to me. It was focused on student teams racing electric cars that they built themselves, and one that I could see taking off in a big way, potentially, if they can get proper attention for it, that involves racing autonomously driven electric cars and that one is rightfully called the robo-race. So the world of high-end, super-fast, difficult and skill-reliant and mechanically complex racing is expanding into electric vehicles, with new experimental rule sets and racing types, all of which may or may not end up pulling in enough fans and sponsors to keep it alive and growing, competing against similar, more traditional, vastly more polluting racing leagues. Notably, though, some big sponsors like Heineken have already made big investments in the FE League, committing to a five-year sponsorship partnership with the newer, greener racing brand. 
and Formula One itself has committed to carbon neutrality by 2030, something that will likely need to be accomplished through a massive number of carbon offsets, since legally the FE League has an exclusive license with the FIA to be the only electric vehicle presence for the next 24 seasons, which means Formula One cannot go electric before 2039, even if they want to. That said, the CEO and founder of Formula E has stated that he would be interested in having a discussion with F1 about how they might set something up so that the traditional racing group could go electric before that if they wanted to, likely some kind of payment or sponsorship agreement. Until then, we will have to wait and see how both leagues evolve, which approach pulls in more marketing dollars and eyeballs, and which investments prove fruitful for the building and racing of these cars in the coming years. What I'd like to talk about today is going green, and how sometimes even the most heartfelt sustainability-related efforts are ineffective, while at other times, the effort is more of a marketing ploy than an earnest desire to change the way things are done. You're listening to Let's Know Things. I'm Colin Wright. The Swedish language has gained new climate-related, habit-related slang over the past few years. Some of these terms were already part of the common local jargon, while others have emerged or been popularized by the increasing sweep of climate change-related news items and the increased and increasing attention paid by media entities and public figures to such issues. The elevation of teenage climate activist Greta Thunberg has also played a role in this linguistic innovativeness, as her mainstreaming of certain concepts and concerns has positioned a spotlight over some activities that, until recently, were unquestioned, uninterrogated aspects of modern living. Flying, in particular, has become, in the minds of some, less of a liberating vacation-associated excursion or neutral work-related necessity, and more of an exercise in excess a means of travel that is relatively polluting and energetically costly and ostentatious. This change in perception has brought the Swedish term fleekskam, meaning flight shame, into the global consciousness, alongside tagstert, or train bragging, which is what you might do on social media after taking a train instead of a plane, a behavior akin to flashing your I voted sticker on Facebook or Instagramming your aesthetically optimized vegan meal. These terms have emerged in parallel with new plane-related behaviors in Sweden, but also increasingly around the world. A year and a half ago, and for context I'm recording this in early January of 2020, a year and a half ago, 20% of Swedish people said they chose trains over planes when the option was available. That number has since increased to 37%. The number of passengers traveling on local airline Swedavia decreased by 15% in April 2020 compared to April 2019, and SJ, the main Swedish train operator, saw a 12% increase in business during the first part of 2019. Airlines have noticed this trend in Sweden and to a lesser degree elsewhere, though the trend is growing less quickly than in Sweden but more quickly than elsewhere in many European markets. Representatives from some airlines have retorted with statistics that show the overall airline industry, including shipping routes alongside passenger-carrying flights, account for a mere 2% of total man-made greenhouse gas emissions worldwide. 
And, they say, newer fuel-efficient planes use about the same amount of fuel per passenger as a half-full train. Non-future comparisons, those made between the majority of existing planes and the majority of European trains in particular, though, are less friendly to their counter-arguments. The Institute for Energy and Environmental Studies based in Germany has an online calculator that allows you to compare the emissions of different vehicle types for trips between cities in Europe. On average, trains produce substantially less CO2 and other greenhouse gases than both cars and planes, the former of which is typically the middle option, and the latter of which is almost always on the most extreme end of the emissions spectrum. One comparison, published in an Associated Press report on this trend, indicated that a journey from Nishapenk, Sweden, to the Danish capital Copenhagen would produce 2.4 kilograms, which is about 5.3 pounds, of CO2 per person on a train. That same trip in a plane would produce 118 kilograms, which is about 260 pounds of CO2 per person, almost 50 times as much. There are, of course, many advantages to flying, including the ability to cross vast distances very quickly compared to other transportation options, and the ability to get from one side of the planet to the other without needing to constantly change vehicles, to traverse mountains, deal with local weather conditions, and so on. Many trips simply would not be feasible, for the average person at least, taking anything but a plane. And notably, the larger planes carrying more people tend to be more efficient per person, and that effect is amplified in the newer, more fuel-efficient models. Nonetheless, a lot of people take planes when other options are available, and part of this shift is about making those alternatives seem not just somewhat viable, but actually like superior options. And part of making that happen is adjusting the mainstream perception of travel so that slower, ground-based, more efficient methods become perceptually enjoyable and desirable rather than something that you must suffer through sometimes. To make trains and similar options a little sexier, and planes something that you might have to take periodically, but will not choose to take if other viable options are available. There's a Swedish term for that too, by the way, at smikfliga, which means basically flying in secret. That in mind, the article I'd like to start with today comes from The Guardian, and it's entitled, Vogue Italia Drops Photoshoots from January Issue, in green statement. This article is about a statement made by another periodical, Vogue Italia, the Italian regional edition of Vogue magazine, about sustainability, ecological impact, and the way the fashion industry, and the fashion media industry in particular, works. The editor's letter for the issue explains why they decided to take a stand, bringing up the values that the Vogue brand as a whole has decided to promote in the coming decade, and saying that one of the components of those shared values, intellectual honesty, was particularly important to him as an editor. From that letter, translated into English, quote, In our case, it means admitting that making a fashion magazine has a significant environmental impact, these above are the data, approximated by default, behind the production of the eight stories of which the last September issue is composed. Change is difficult, but how can we ask others to do it if we don't question ourselves? So this month, we wanted to send a message that creativity, a pillar of vogue for almost 130 years, can and must make us explore different paths. End quote. The data that he referred to there is, quote, 150 people involved, about 20 flights and a dozen or so train journeys, 40 cars on standby, 
60 international deliveries, lights switched on for at least 10 hours non-stop, partly powered by gasoline-fueled generators, food waste from the catering services, plastic to wrap the garments, electricity to recharge phones and cameras, dot dot dot, end quote. A component of this statement, then, is being open about what's involved in the typical production process of a magazine like the one he produces. These are the figures. Here's what they consume to make it happen on a regular basis. The second component, though, was acting upon that information. And as such, the January 7th, 2020 edition of Vogue Italia contains no photography at all. There are eight different illustrated cover variations, each depicting a model wearing Gucci clothing. And throughout the magazine, the standard editorial shoots, the conceptual photo series displaying new fashions and trends and models and designers, were replaced by illustrations portraying the same. The logic here is that most of the waste and emissions created by the making of this magazine are tied up in the photography process, flying people around and getting the right shots, basically. Doing the layout and writing and things of that nature are no small effort, but they consume far fewer resources and they can be done from wherever, using the internet and software. This special issue goes out the same year that Italian Vogue will be one of the first magazines under the larger Condé Nast brand umbrella to use 100% compostable plastic wrap on their print magazines. But it's important to note that this illustration-focused issue is just a one-off. They're doing a special issue in which they're changing things around to alleviate a lot of the waste that goes into the production of the product that they make, but then they're going back to business as usual. And that, along with the fact that producing and shipping tangible paper-based goods slathered in ink and fancy glosses, is itself quite wasteful compared to digital alternatives. All of that has a lot of sustainable experts crying foul, calling this a PR stunt and a headline grab, a move meant to pull in positive press and gain kudos from the sustainability world, rather than a true effort to change anything. Vogue Italia's special issue hit shelves less than a week after another sustainability-focused public relations win, this time in Los Angeles at the Golden Globe Awards, often called the party of the year because of the popular whining and dining that occurs alongside the award ceremony and the great many big-name celebrities who attend. For this, the 77th Golden Globes event, the usual fancy menu was replaced with a still fancy, but 100% plant-based menu. The president of the Hollywood Foreign Press Association, which hosts the Golden Globes, had this to say about the change. Quote, If there's a way we can not change the world, but save the planet, maybe we can get the Golden Globes to send a signal and draw attention to the issue about climate change. The food we eat, the way we grow the food we eat, the way we dispose of the food, is one of the large contributors to the climate crisis. End quote. The chef who was in charge of the menu said that the change, which was proposed only two weeks before the show, was surprised at first, but that he got really into it and excited about the possibilities, and that he loved the message it sent. So they took some extra time to make sure it was all plant-based, as sustainable as possible, and delicious enough that the guests would probably only notice how good it was. The menu included king oyster mushroom scallops, wild mushroom risotto, roasted baby purple and green Brussels sprouts and carrots, and a chilled golden beet soup. Natural and sustainably sourced Icelandic spring water was served in glass bottles to avoid plastic waste. Once more, we have a group with power and influence making a statement that is broadly positive as far as sustainability and eco-friendly measures go, but these statements are not coupled with wholesale overhauls 
of the entities making them. The Golden Globe Awards have people flying in from all over the world to attend a fancy event, and the food is only one small part of that on-location production, not to mention the many tendrils of consumption and waste that expand outward from an effort that costly and sprawling. Similarly, Vogue Italia, like most fashion-focused media entities, celebrates and popularizes brands that are immensely wasteful, including, arguably, the perpetuation and normalization of the fashion season cycle, which keeps new styles cycling in at a very steady pace to increase consumption amongst consumers, lest they get left behind and look so last season. Something that's great for fast fashion and high-end clothing companies, but not great in terms of consumption and waste figures, not to mention the consumer's pocketbook. The question here, then, is how we respond to statements and gestures made by entities of this kind, when the gestures themselves are arguably quite positive, but which are also not necessarily backed by anything more than one-off actions, which could be construed as stunts, but also potentially as genuine efforts to make a difference that nonetheless lack the foundational support to do more than a gesture at this point, but which may follow through with more later, depending on the response that they get. That latter point is actually really important here, because it may be that if Vogue Italia gets a massive wave of support and enthusiasm for their illustration-focused efforts, they'll then follow that success with another set of actions that can then be justified financially to the suits who decide where all the money goes. In a lot of cases, in other words, these gestures are trial balloons, not just stunts. And that means if the right feedback emerges after they fly their balloons, these small bursts of effort could become more reliable, steady efforts. Complete revamps of how they do things, rather than just isolated single-issue experiments. It could also be, though, that these companies are only intending to gesture toward iteration, so that they can avoid making any more substantial changes, or even unwanted revolutions within their industries, within their brand umbrellas. Seeming to care about climate change could keep people off their back when it comes to climate-related issues, and it could perhaps even sick those people on other targets, on their competitors, allowing them to continue to benefit from the current status quo for a while longer. I think in a lot of cases, the truth is somewhere in the middle. The people involved are almost certainly not sociopathic masterminds, but they're also not likely to be radical evangelists, willing to torpedo their careers or their industries to be the first to make important, arguably necessary changes to the way things are done. Of course, it may also be that they've done the math, and it turns out, in some cases, the more sustainable approach to implementing ecological sustainability may be to ensure that you can continue to fight the good fight from the inside for a good long while. A radical stance may be very warranted in some circumstances. I would personally argue that what we're going through in terms of human-amplified climate change fits into that category in many respects, though there are a lot of causes that could conceivably fit the bill, and different people can reasonably feel that strongly about things like free speech and human rights efforts because of what they've experienced, what they know, or simply how one or another cause affects them logically or emotionally. But whatever your cause, it may be that sometimes taking a more measured stride, a less radical-seeming, less alarming approach, alarming to your friends and co-workers, who are perhaps not naturally as alarmed at the same level as you, or alarmed at all, 
that may allow you to make stronger, sturdier, more impactful inroads, while also putting you in a position to make such changes over time, over a long period, whereas the reins could be pulled from your hands or kept from you from the get-go if you approach the same issues more aggressively and overtly. This might mean that the editor of Vogue Italia would truly like to do more, but he knows that if he pushes too hard too fast, he'll lose what power he currently wields. And by slowly but surely showing people higher up the food chain that it's good business to do ecologically sustainable things, he'll be able to continue to wield that power and leverage it appropriately toward ends that he thinks are important little by little which may not allow him to act as quickly as he would prefer, or do things that seem as sexy to folks who want more dramatic radical change. But the opposite approach could lose him his job and or reputation within the field, which in turn could lose him the ability to influence the fashion media space at all. The same could be true of the folks in charge of the Golden Globes event, of politicians forwarding legislation on causes that they truly care about, and even folks in the car racing industry who might be waiting for the spun-off version of their main league to begin to flourish before they can replace the old formula's way of doing things with the more desirable methods, by their standards at least, utilized by the new one. That said, greenwashing, which is the branding of something as being sustainable or eco-friendly in some way without actually making it so, is common in pretty much every industry these days, as there are social and economic rewards for taking seemingly ethical stands on environmental issues, but it can be monetarily costly and even reputationally risky to actually do so. Some greenwashing efforts are fairly overt and involve giving a product or service a green sheen, a new paint job, but not offering anything beyond a marketing effort or design revamp that is commonly associated with environmentally friendly products. I see this with packaging a lot, as certain types of paper and cardboard, but also certain color schemes and logos and typography have come to be associated with cleaner, greener products. It's possible for a non-green company or product then to utilize these looks, these aesthetics, these brand components, and to then soak up some of that green money without making any kind of actual sustainability investment. Other deeper sorts of greenwashing, though, take the same troublesome shape that Vogue Italia and the Golden Globes are potentially taking. Maybe the people behind these eco-friendly moves are legitimately trying to make positive change in their industry, but it's tricky to know how meaningful their gestures are when the industries and business models and products supported by their work, more broadly, continue to be unchanged and in seeming opposition to the green statements that they're making. The fashion industry, as a whole, is immensely wasteful, Traditional print media is a troublesome product type in an age of abundant waste and shipping pollution, and the advertising model that underpins most of such publications is itself an amplifier of, or creator of, many other sorts of problems, from privacy violations to the logic of ever-increasing consumption as the only means of keeping the economy ticking along healthily. And does it really make sense to ship a bunch of sustainably sourced water from Iceland to California for a star-studded event? At what point do the fundamental realities of these industries and products wash away the benefits of the PR-ready efforts that they're making? It's a bit like a candy bar company, supporting healthy living legislation, but continuing to sell candy bars. The gesture is nice, and perhaps even beneficial, but they're still selling candy bars. And if we're looking at just the raw health numbers, it would arguably be better, potentially, for them just to shut down their companies, or completely change their product catalog, 
rather than making nice gestures that heavily contrast with their corporate priorities and activities. Of course, it's unlikely that a candy bar company will stop making candy bars just because, by some metrics, that would be good for the world. We have other incentives and structures in place that allow us to focus on other types of value and prioritize those other types of value. And that's arguably a very good thing. There are negative consequences to pretty much everything. And if we started to collapse any industry that had downsides, I don't know that we'd be able to produce much of anything. That said, some gestures of this kind are just blatantly superficial marketing efforts, meant to make petroleum companies seem forward-thinking and environmentally friendly, or tech company monopolies seem somewhat less socially harmful. These messages are even more effective when we want them to be true. Our tendency toward confirmation bias and the desire to maintain an imperfect status quo over a scary-seeming unknown future primes us to be open to even obviously inaccurate messaging that gives us the excuse to avoid uncomfortable ideas and the permission to refocus our attention elsewhere on less troublesome things. Which is another reason why greenwashing has become so popular so quickly. It provides us with excuses to support things that, had we the raw data rather than slogans and marketing campaigns, we probably would not otherwise support. Probably the most vital component of this conversation, though, is recognizing that not all virtue posturing is a reliable indication of actual virtue. Not all half-measures are meant to remain half-measures, and what would seem to be the best solution to any particular problem won't necessarily be straightforward, as there are many variables we wouldn't necessarily think to include in our mental formulations as to how things work and might work in the future. There's plenty of intentional muddling of issues happening here, in other words, but there's also a lot of innocent misunderstandings, dangerous oversimplifications, and emotional reflexes where rational calculations might, at times, lead to superior outcomes. The book I'd like to recommend today is called Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World, by David Epstein. When I saw the title to this book, I felt like it was calling out to me specifically. The world that we live in definitely does tend to orient us toward specialization for a lot of very good reasons, but it also therefore often caters to specialization and specialized people. And I found as somebody who's kind of a multidisciplinarian, who likes to dabble in a whole lot of things and look into those things with some depth, but also to compare and contrast those industries or skills to other industries and skills, that it can be tricky to fit those types of interests and that type of background into existing schema, like, for instance, things like resumes and CVs. This book dives into the scholarly research that is available on the subject of range and multidisciplinarianism, and gives some very good arguments about why, even if you are a dedicated specialist who truly enjoys deep diving in that one field that you really truly love and find fulfillment in, it can be useful to expand your horizons a little bit, not only because it, in some ways, by some definitions, makes you a more well-rounded individual, but also because that can open up new levels of your specialization that you didn't even know existed, and never would have seen, never would have perceived, had you not expanded your horizons in that way. If any of that sounds interesting to you, consider picking up a copy of Range by David Epstein. You can find out more about me and my work, including the books that I've written, at colin.io. You can find my blog at exilelifestyle.com. 
And you can find the show notes for this episode and every episode of the podcast at letsknowthings.com. I've got a couple of email-based publications that you can subscribe to if you care to. You can find those at brainlenses.com and askcolin.com. And feel free to reach out and say howdy on your social network of choice. I am at Colin is my name on Twitter and Instagram, and just Colin Wright on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Colin Wright, and I'll talk to you again next week. Thank you.